0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi. Siri. Siri. Welcome to High Theory. In this podcast, we get high on the substance of theory. I'm Sharunik Boshu. And I'm Kim Adams. We are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself. Welcome to High Theory. Thank you
1: so much. I'm really excited to be back.
0: Yeah, excited to have you back. So today I am talking with Pardis Tabashi about
1: Plot. Pardis, can I ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners? Absolutely. Hi, everyone. My name is Pardis Debashi. I am an assistant professor at Bryn Mawr College. I'm based in the English department, and I have affiliations in the Film Studies Program and the Middle Eastern Studies Program. Cool. And you have a new book out
0: that's called Losing the Plot, Film and Feeling in the Modern Novel, which is why we are asking you, what the heck is plot?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question because there is very little consensus actually around what plot is. And I've had a lot of really fun and funny conversations with folks working in different areas of literary studies, actually, and film and media studies about whether plot is even the word that, like, what is the utility of the word precisely because of the fact that there are so many kind of contesting ideas about what plot is. Okay. So the way that I define plot in my book is as a narrative mechanism that tracks change, change that is meaningful or significant. Okay. So which is for me what actually distinguishes my understanding of plot from some other sort of narrative theorists and narratologists where for me plot becomes – Interesting once it engages or triggers stakes. Okay. And part of those stakes are the third element of plot that's important for me, which is establishing norms. Mm-hmm. For example, in one of the sections of my chapter on William Faulkner, I talk about these really, really early narrative films that were made at the turn of the century, where film practitioners were getting used to making films tell stories because films did not, at the very beginning, many of them, most of them, did not tell stories. Many of them were just interested in the mere fact of being able to record anything at all. As you move over into the early 1900s, you have these early films that are starting to kind of become narrative films. And what makes them narrative films, this isn't me theorizing this, like other folks have theorized this, especially Marianne Don has been really good on this. What makes them narrative films is that they are engaging stakes that then sort of establish normative, like a normative world. So one of the films that I look at is called Electrocuting an Elephant, a Thomas Edison film. And it's only like 58 seconds long or something. In that film, a working circus elephant named Topsy is executed. She's executed because she had been reportedly like very aggressive toward a number of the patrons of the circus. So in the film she gets executed and it's an economical example of how there's change over time. The elephant is alive, the elephant is dead. But then that change is significant in the sense that it's like, you know, we're watching the death of a living being. And then it establishes normative constraints or it establishes a normative world because Topsy is being punished for something that she's done that is considered to be morally reprehensible in the given world that she's in, right? So plots that matter, plots that are kind of narratively interesting for folks who work on the temporal arts are these kind of narrative mechanisms that twin change to significance then twin that to a normative world. That's kind of complicated, but those three elements, so change, significance, and norms for me are really kind of what constitutes plot. So, okay. So if plot consists of
0: change and stakes and norms, then how do I use plot?
1: <sighs> yeah, it's a great question. Well, all of these questions are great. So The way that that question is interesting for me is to think about it in terms of how plot has been used in effective ways Mm -hmm. throughout history. And when I say effective, I don't mean good, right? I mean, actually, I mean, effective in the sense that a really kind of powerful set of influences for me in this line of inquiry is Benjamin and Hannah Arendt both of whom are thinking about the role of art in the mechanisms of political power and particularly coercive governance. And so the ways that, for instance, for Benjamin and Arendt, the Nazi regime kind of used certain narratives of Native Germanic identity, or a return to form, or a kind of Germans as being victim to certain external forces that then needed to be kind of cleansed. Mm -hmm. These are narratives, right? These are narratives of victimization, they're narratives of persecution that the Nazi regime was very good at mobilizing. And so when Benjamin at the end of his work of art essay, talks about this idea of aestheticization of politics. Mm -hmm. My understanding of what he's talking about is the way that pernicious political programs become popular, like become effective when they become narrative, which is to say when they become adept at telling people sort of where they are now, how their life could change for the better and what world that would establish if those changes were to take place. And so to answer the question, how do I use plot? I'm interested in the ways that plot has been used as actually a kind of palliative political formation to subjugate people, right? To subjugate people and to empower others. So when Walter Benjamin, for example, says that what the Fuhrer cult does is create a space for which the masses to articulate their dissatisfaction, but to keep the structures of that dissatisfaction in place, what he's naming is the role of human expressive culture in, on the one hand, like providing a platform for voicing the ways that one wishes the world were different and denying the kind of structural changes that would be needed in order to have those structures actually changed. So plot is interesting because it can be used in this nefarious way. And the modernists that I'm interested in, like Nell Larson, Juno Barnes and William Faulkner, they're very aware of the ways that modernist literature is responding to not just the sort of the rise of totalitarianism and fascism in the early 20th century but also the realist novel you know and the ways that the realist novel was deploying let's say the marriage plot the love plot the historical plot as ways of papering over normalizing various kinds of social and political inequality at the very least and like violence and unfreedom at most and wanting to challenge that the desire in the part of modernists to reject literary realism or what they understood literary realism to be it was in large part a refusal to kind of perpetuate those kinds of narratives. Okay, so plot sounds pretty bad. I mean, yes, yes, plot sounds well. Yes, plot sounds bad in the way that I'm describing it. yes, the story that I'm interested in telling is how plot for modernists is this bad thing. Mm -hmm. that they nevertheless can't get away from, Mm -hmm. right? Like that is, I think, what makes modernism interesting for me is that it's not a wholesale rejection of plot on the grounds that plot is this sort of like intrinsically conservative literary form that needs to be rejected. It's that even though plot has this potential and we can spot that potential, right? Like as critical subjects, we can spot that potential. We nevertheless reach for it. We nevertheless find solace in it. And that's actually, I think, you know, this gets to the third question. We can talk about this more at like, length there, like this gets to the kind of ambivalence that I think is at the center of what I'm trying to say and losing the plot, which is like, we can be aware, and this is a very Berlantian argument, like we can be aware of all the ways that plot is this thing that has the potential to really mystify various kinds of political unfreedom and social unfreedom and still want it, you know? It's what we do every day. It's like why we go to Netflix. It's why we binge watch. It's why we It's why we go to the movies at all, right? Like, of course, not only, but a major, major part of what it is.
0: And so we want the plots that take us away from the realities of the world.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But nevertheless, giving us a kind of platform. Again, this is the Benjamin thing. Like, nevertheless, giving us a platform on which to articulate the ways that we're dissatisfied with how things are.
0: Well, then let me actually ask
1: you the third question. Yes. (laughs) So
0: how will plot save the world?
1: I think the answer here is to create different plots. You know, it's like we were just talking about how like plot is bad. Plot isn't intrinsically bad. Plot, I think, is actually intrinsically neutral. It's rather that it can be mobilized in different ways. In the coda of my book, I look at this film called The Earrings of Madame D'Eux, and it's a mid-20th century film by this director named Max Ophuls. It's about a wealthy French aristocrat at presumably the turn of the century who lives a life of extreme material security, but also, you know, an effect of that material security is that the things that take place in her life are kind of like there's a roteness to them. Things happen, but nothing that happens seems to be able to shake the kind of immovable normative world that she lives in. But then one day she meets this baron. And she falls in love with the Baron. The Baron falls in love with her. And the kind of relationship that they develop has the capacity to generate a kind of narrative causality, I'm arguing, that could actually rupture the the rote sameness of the world that they live in. That love, I talk about it in terms of love as opposed to desire, the love that they have together gives a sense of emancipation from a certain kind of rote sameness that is associated with the ways that colonial violence has become normalized in, in her French aristocratic milieu. Okay, But the problem is that what Max O'Fool's is suggesting is that yes, or that what I'm arguing he's suggesting is that yes, the love that takes place between these two characters does have the capacity to kind of generate... World-changing ramifications. So, a kind of plot that is politically, let's say, emancipatory, but it's also predicated on they're not actually being together. Okay. Because they're, they're, yeah, they're both they they both die. They both die. So he dies in a duel and she dies of a broken heart as a result of him dying in the duel. Those are the only circumstances under which that love can be articulated. To be articulated in any other way, let's say they love each other and they get together and they ride off into the sunset, it would be immediately sort of subsumed back into the sort of narrative machinery of the love plot, the marriage plot that the film has spent so much time dismantling. And so the ambivalence of that film is that on the one hand, it shows us that there is a kind of love plot, actually, that has the power to operate according to different politics. But because we are so trained in the desire to want to see the happy ending,
0: Mm
1: -hmm. or at least we were, I think things are maybe a little bit different now, but that is not the outcome that we find ourselves wanting The subtitle of my book is called Film and Feeling in the Modern Novel. For me, the affect of film spectatorship is so important. We want to see Louise and the Baron get together. We don't want this sort of like revolutionary emancipatory love to be predicated on them both dying. Right. Like Yeah, that sounds um, bad. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds terrible. Yeah. You know, like we want to see that final image of him taking her in his arms and, you know, like whatever, riding off in some late nineteenth century carriage or whatever. Yeah. And it's that kind of ambivalence of like, okay, like th- this is a different kind of plot. Here we are presented with a different kind of narrativity that's bent toward a more emancipatory politics, mm-hmm. but I don't want it. I want to see the, you know, like I want to yeah. the final image of the couple together, like loving each other and finding some sort of other way to exist. And so it's that kind of ambivalence that I think is not just something that I'm interested in, in my book, but. The thing that we have to reckon with if we are to sort of like generate new kinds of narratives, let's look at the kinds of narratives that we have in front of us that are bent toward radical violence and see how we might imagine alternative ones. And also like be honest with ourselves about our kind of romantic attachments to like narratives that are actually quite conservative. Hmm. we have to sort of like admit to that first before we can then move forward. I mean, this is why Berlin's work is really important for me. They're so good at talking about this. So anyway, this is a little bit of like the background. And in terms of what emancipatory narratives are possible, Mm -hmm. frankly, I don't know. I'm less interested in finding out what those are right now, and more interested in kind of thinking through what it means to kind of diagnose a problem. Well, thank you for
0: coming and (laughs) diagnosing our problems.
1: Oh my god. (laughs) I'm a doctor, but not that kind of doctor. Indeed. Kim, thank you so much for having me. It's always such a pleasure to talk to you.
0: You too. And thank you for listening to High Theory. If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe wherever you get your podcast fixed. Owen Quinn composes our theme music, Sharonic Bosu and Kim Adams edit our audio, and Sharonic Bosu manages our social media. You can find High Theory on the New Books Network and also on hightheory.net. We hope you have a highly theoretical day.